one. Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. This is another nature update for this episode. I have Chris Gilmore here with me from chrisoutdoors.ca. And we're going to talk about some things that are happening in our areas because Chris lives about three hours north of me. So his climate is a little bit different than where I am. So this is a nice little mix of what's going on in the world where we live regarding food, regarding what's available on the landscape and what things he may be up to to make sure that he can provide more food for himself later. So Chris, what is happening in your area and what are you up to for, for food wise and nature awareness? Yeah, well, it's cool. You know, spring came on really fast and early, and then it really just kind of plateaued. So our, our mm. wild leeks came up and they grew about two thirds of the way. And I actually chatted about that on the last episode. Um, and they basically kind of stalled out and they're growing really slow right now. So we're actually yeah. going to have a longer leek harvest this year, which is that's kind of exciting. Yeah. Um, so wild leek harvesting. Um, and then outside of that, it's a lot of scouting this time of year, turkey season, literally just open today. Uh, so I was out at 630 this morning. Um, basically hiking up to a couple of ridges, just listening to hear if I could hear any uh, turkeys gobbling, trying to, to dial in on where they are. Uh, and I've also been out doing a bunch of scouting for, for deer season, uh, for next year's deer season. Um, this is a great time of year to go and find like rubs and uh, scrapes from last year's rut uh, to help you kind of pattern in on the movement uh, patterns of these animals. So I was out the other day and I found uh, a whole new area that I'd ever, never actually been in that was just littered with uh, scrapes and rubs. So this weekend, I'm actually going to go out and start prepping some spots uh, to sit in. So come fall time, I don't have to be making a lot of disturbance. I can just slip right in there. So turkey, deer, wild leeks, those are the main things on my mind right now. Oh, trout season's about to open as well. Oh, nice. uh, I haven't made any plans to go out, but I've been uh, I've been chatting with some neighbors and uh, looking at some maps and scouting out some nice uh, some nice trout lakes with native brook trout populations. So uh, also getting ready for for trout fishing. Nice. Uh, anything, uh, any other fish that you're dealing with right now? Smelt no, wise? we just finished up the smell. Oh yes. Yeah. Smelt season. I, I chatted about that last episode. Actually one interesting piece. I'll, I'll just share on that a quick little sure. story. Uh, so one thing I love about harvesting food from the land and hunting is being able to share it with, uh, with my neighbors and my family, uh, and particularly with some of the el more elderly folks that aren't able to hunt anymore. So I've got mm. some neighbors across the road. They're in their eighties, I think. Um, they used to hunt a lot and they're not able to get into the woods quite as much as they used to. So I brought right. him over a bag of smelt, uh, when I, when I came off the river last week and I got a knock on my door, uh, about half an hour ago, uh, go upstairs and sure enough, he's sitting there and he's got this big bottle of uh, homemade cider for me. Uh, beautiful. so it was just this kind of beautiful exchange. I brought him the smelts and then he drops off the spider. Uh, we chat, you know, what are the turkeys doing right now? You hearing any gobbles over there? So, uh, I, I just love that part of the, uh, the kind of culture of food as well. Definitely, definitely. Uh, so what's going on where I am is I, I, just like you, I'm getting ready for Turkey, but I haven't had much time to get out and actually, you know, pattern the gun or anything like that. And that's what this whole episode is going to be about. So I'm not going to dive too much into that. But what I'm also noticing is our leaks are pretty much at full capacity now where we are, because we have like this nice warm microclimate on the on Rice Lake. But what's really fascinating is we had a massive snowstorm two days ago that dumped, I don't know, two inches of snow everywhere where I live, which was completely unexpected uh, outside of like just checking the forecast and seeing it was coming. But for the nature itself was not expecting that. And as I was out checking my beaver traps, because I'm spring beaver trapping right now, uh, on my way home, I happened to kick some snow up with my, uh, my boot when I was moving some dirt out of the way on the trail. And sure enough, there was a field of fiddleheads just a, uh, just a field and they're very tiny little ostrich fern fiddleheads, but they are everywhere right now. So I'm getting ready today to go out with a basket and get a good little feel, uh, feed of those 
from my grandmother because she absolutely adores fiddleheads. I like them too, but not as much as she does. And again, she's 81, 82 now. She can't really get out in the woods and pick those herself. The other thing that's coming up right now is just the regular ephemeral spring edibles. So we're seeing, again, like leeks, fiddleheads. But in my garden where I've been doing a lot of work, we're seeing a ton of garlic mustard, which is a very, it's a, it's a very aggressive invasive that's edible. So we're gathering it all up. My wife and I, we dehydrate about 10 pounds of it every year uh, and then turn that all into seasoning for the rest of the year to feed us and make the meals taste garlicky and taste a little spicy and have a nice little just classic seasoning. But I also cook with it. Uh, I stew them almost like spinach and treat them like spinach and eat them with uh, greens and everything else. Uh, garlic mustard is probably the number one green that I would recommend everybody harvest because it's not it's not going to go away. It's very sustainable to harvest that kind of wild green. And it's very easy to learn and they taste pretty good. I, I haven't met anybody that really hates the taste of garlic mustard yet. Uh, if I have, they haven't mentioned it. But uh, that's what I've, I've been up to the most lately is just getting into spring beaver trapping because they're flooding the roads and they're causing some damage where they are. We'll probably be doing a spring beaver talk in another week or two on the podcast, but I'm going to save it till then. Uh, and I'll be on that, just the spring ephemeral uh, foraging that I love to do. So that's our nature update for this weekend of April 25th. Thank you very much, Chris. To know the landscape is to open up a door To feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before We know that you will love this podcast So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft one. Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musker. And I'm joined today with Nikki Satira helping on support on audio, but we also have two very special guests, Paul McCarney from Landscapes and Letters and Chris Gilmore from chrisoutdoors.ca, correct? .ca. .ca, perfect. I want to make sure I got that right. And we're here to talk about, because today the episode that's dropping on this specific day is about turkey hunting, because today is opener for turkey in my region of Ontario. Uh, April 25th is turkey opener and it continues on for the majority of the month of May. So there's a lot of time to go for this big, big old bird. At the same time, it's only, a, it's, it's different than waterfowl because waterfowl you have huge bag limits. For white-tailed deer, you get a large animal that's you know pretty easy to go out and understand. If you follow our, our episode that we did about deer hunting, it's a very simple animal with very simple equipment to go after. There's a lot of complexity to them, but they're, it's not a, a gear heavy hunt. Whereas turkey, you got to kind of know what you're doing. You kind of have to have certain things to really help you out to have the most success rate for such a singular, maybe two birds in a season that you're able to take, depending on what time of year it is and what your WMU or your hunting regions rules are. So before we dive into this, I want to give a very big disclaimer. I am not a seasoned turkey hunter. I am an opportunistic hunter. I've been out during turkey season hunting other animals and I saw a turkey and I took the shot and was able to take them legally and everything else like that. Uh, I've never gone all the way out to take a decoy and take out the camo and get a turkey choke and get the right kind of ammo and get a turkey call and sit there for days on end scouting and calling. That's not really my forte, although this year that's kind of actually my focus this year is to get into turkey hunting. So I brought in Chris Gilmore, who has similar experiences in that kind of light of the idea of opportunistic hunting, but also as the lead instructor for 
the Hunter's Journey course that's coming up. This is a great subject that Chris has been very interested in as well. But we also brought in Paul McCartney, who's been turkey hunting for like turkey. Paul, how long have you been turkey hunting now? It was the first thing I started hunting. Um, oh, right on. I think in uh, 2008. I think it was when I got my license and started hunting and it was the first thing I got to go for. Um, but I, I haven't hunted turkeys in the last few years because I live in Newfoundland now and right. there are no turkeys here. Um, right. Not yet. So. At least. They might learn to swim. They tried to uh, introduce them. Like, there was an effort to introduce them to the island, really? actually. And yeah, that was um, re correctly recognized as a terrible idea by the uh, provincial government. And they, um, I think, fairly swiftly stopped that idea. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, there's a there's a Canadian Wild Turkey Federation chapter hmm. in the island. Is, That's amazing. That's hilarious. hilarious. Yeah. It's they're probably just shaking their heads at all this <laughs> well probably and i i to be on i'll be honest i was uh, i was kind of frustrated that canyon wild turkey federation would even consider supporting the idea and um and a chapter here and i don't know that they did i have not looked into that but i um right yeah i mean newfoundland does not have a good history with um like game introductions so right uh, it was a good, it was a good choice to not pursue that yeah. but yeah but anyway so it's sort of ironic that i started hunting turkeys and then my, one of my favorite things to hunt and then i moved to a place that does not have turkeys and that's an interesting thing because from my own research for about a year ago i started looking into it because i started getting more interested is the one animal i've never really targeted before and so i started looking at looking into it more like what's the interest in turkey because for me i've always looked at turkey as kind of like this bizarre category of hunting because as i said like ducks and geese huge bag limits i can get as many as i really want as long as i can kill them but they're pretty much within my my legal right to take turkey you're allowed like two in the spring and one in the fall or one in the spring two in the fall and yeah yeah two in the spring one in the fall and there's these restrictions on exactly which one you're allowed to take it has to be a bearded turkey and all those kinds of things uh and then beyond that is simply the the actual like living history of the turkey is a very strange category because from what i've been able to find out they were only native to like what 38 maybe 40 states and now they're in every single state except for alaska and i think they're on their way there and like a lot of people think of hunting as like this category where animal numbers are crashing all the time because of hunting where it seems to be the exact opposite deer are at an all-time high wild turkey are across every single continental state now except for like hawaii and and alaska and then you also have like canada geese that are at the 7.7 .7 million in just canada alone and have become invasive species in other countries and other continents so as we've talked about like the ethics of hunting before hunting hunting regulations and controlled hunting and everything that's put around and the expenses that come out of it uh, have benefited animals for a long time and turkey's clearly one of them so i've become fascinated by them over the last i'd say nine to six months and i just need to know more so i figured we would do this episode and drag in a couple of friends who are fellow hunters and we would talk about turkey and what we need to know so Let's start off with regulations or legalities and like what are expected of turkey hunters. So what do we need to know in Ontario and most of the country for turkey hunting? Anybody want to pick that up or should I just start running with it? Paul's pointing at me, so I guess it's my turn. So uh, first and foremost, for a long time in Ontario, there was restrictions on who could go in turkey hunt and all that kind of stuff. 
um, you had to take a turkey hunter course. And there's also some safety aspects to that as well, because this is one of the few land hunts that you're shooting on flat ground without any kind of orange or visible safety equipment. Uh, so you, you're wearing camouflage because turkeys have some of the sharpest eyes in the animal kingdom in, in North America. They are, they're actually not just binocular vision, but they can actually kind of zoom in and hone in on something and actually focus their attention on one detail. So if you blink your eye too many times, they start looking your way. And then if you try to like wipe your nose or scratch an itch or adjust your shoulder, they just bugger off. They just take off because they saw that. Whereas a duck or a goose, I've been in the middle of the field adjusting decoys as they're landing. And white-tailed deer, as long as you're standing still enough, they don't panic too much. It's mostly scent with them. So turkey, first off, you have to be very well camouflaged, but that leads to a safety issue of other hunters. So you have to have the proper safety equipment, which is, well, not a safety equipment because there's not really anything safe about turkey hunting in my eyes. You have to be a lot more diligent on your safety. You have to check in to make sure there's not other hunters in the area. I, I actually like to wear orange or at least something visible while I'm walking to my site or going to my site. And then once I'm in my blind, I'll take those things off. But once I'm in position, uh, beyond that, there's also the things you shouldn't have on you. Turkey males, when they're fully, I don't want to say rutted out, when they're, they're not really rutting, but when they're in their mood, when they're in the mood, uh, they will actually inflate their faces and fill them with all these colors of red, blue, and white, which are actually some of the symbolic colors of Benjamin Franklin's desire to make them the national bird of the United States of America, red, white, and blue. So, Which I, I would have strongly supported Yeah, if yeah. I were alive at that time. Turkeys are badass. Like a bald eagle, don't get me wrong. Bald eagles are beautiful and they're all these amazing things, but they're also not just endemic to the United States. And they're not just, you know, the most brave bird. Whereas a turkey is willing to fight anything. I, two falls back, I was deer hunting and I had two days in a row a Tom Turkey challenging me and walking like five yards behind me for the first 15 minutes of my hunt, just, oh, and just fluffing out all of his feathers, his fan open. And he's like right behind me, you know, fronting on me. And I'm a hunter in orange with a gun. And it's like, you should know these things. Why are you, why are you challenging me? They're very brave birds and very interesting birds. But because of that blue and red and white, I don't recommend bringing any bandanas or any hats or anything that are red, blue, or white, or any of the mixture of those three colors. Uh, beyond that, when it comes down to safety, I would recommend communicating with anybody in the area to let them know that you are in that region turkey hunting so that they don't wander out in a brown jacket with a red ball cap on or anything like that. Those are the first things I would talk about when it comes down to safety. Or the, the, those are the things that would be coming to my mind immediately. And of course knowing what's behind your target, knowing where you're setting up, having a clear visibility of the area, that all comes up with proper setup and proper preparation. And Nikki asked the question, will they attack you? They can. Uh, actually, to, uh, Nikki, I believe you have a story with wild turkeys that you made into a video once. Do you want to unmute and tell that story? Or? It's not a great story. I love it. I love it. <laughs> it was at the Wolf Den Hostel and Nature Retreat. Um, <laughs> I saw a group of turkeys. What is a group of turkeys called? What's a the flock. collective noun? A flock. flock. A gobble. I'm going to call it a gobble. I saw a gobble of turkeys and I did a turkey call at them and they like perked their necks up and they flew right over me like 
they they <laughs> charged at her. I had her to and get right down. I had to like get down. You can't really tell in the video, but I like dropped to the ground. <laughs> Amazing. It was. They also will challenge cars. I've I've noticed. I've we've had a few altercations where Tom just was in the middle of the road and slowed down traffic because he would not budge. There was a famous pair of turkeys in downtown Peterborough that would block Armour Road traffic on a daily basis. So beyond that, what should we know about, tur what, what are some things that we should know about turkey hunting, Paul? What would you recommend people should be aware of or what they should have with them? Things like that. What, what would you tell to somebody that's just getting into turkey hunting if you had the chance to tell them something? Just one thing? Can I choose two? Do a couple, do a few if you have. I would tell them to learn about and appreciate the history of, nat of wild turkeys in Ontario. First and foremost, there used to be, as you said, there used to be a separate wild turkey course that you had to take, right? You take your hunting license, and your firearm license, and you had to take a separate turkey hunting, wild turkey hunting course. Um, and that was one of the most fun days I've ever spent. They've since gotten rid of that. But I would tell people to make sure you learn about the history of wild turkeys in Ontario, which is mm -hmm. uh, important and interesting. And, and I think people need to appreciate the birds. Um, so I would tell them that first and foremost. Secondly, I would tell them stop moving and stop calling. Yeah. Um, people get out into the, into, in there and they've, and they, I, I mean, I, I do this, you load up on your calls and um, you sit down and, and then you like start shifting around to make sure that you're like super comfortable. And then do they just start, it's just like they're in a metal band with their calls rattling away and not rattling, but you know, squawking away and, got, and everything. Um, and uh, yeah, less is usually more with turkey calling. Um, they're they're clever with their with their calls and their language, and it's easy to call too much and spook them. Mm -hmm. um, but they're curious, so sometimes when. I mean, um, yeah, I would say like when you think it's time to call again, wait another 10 minutes yeah. and sit still, stop moving. Um, yeah. And, you know, turkey is just like many other animals. I feel like, you know, they often have way better focus and attention spans than, than modern day humans do, you know, uh, yes. whereas it's like, okay, I did my call. It's like, okay, two minutes have gone by. Should I call again? Whereas, you know, like I've experienced that a ton in deer, like you'll let out one grunt and that deer is thinking about your grunt for the next 40 minutes, you know, mm -hmm. um, and you've long forgotten that you even made that grunt. And, you know, and if you just keep making a bunch of noise since then, um, you're, you're potentially doing more harm than good at this point. Right. Um, I totally agree. And I, and they have a far, they being yeah, deer turkeys, um, I would, the exception, I, yeah, the exception would probably be waterfowl where, um, they do need coaxing, but yeah, exactly. Deer and turkeys. The other thing too, Chris is like, when you make a call, they've pinpointed your location. My GPS is not as accurate as they are. They now have my location pinpointed. So you don't need to keep reminding them where you are. They are not like a, a, a millennial on their phone who needs to check in every 10 seconds texting. I'm on the way, I'm around the corner, I'm at your door, I'm knocking. They, they don't need that. They, they know where you are. And yeah, I agree, they have a much better attention span and, and uh, yeah, just let them figure it out a little bit. And, and the reason you're not seeing them right away is because they're actually being a strategic in how they're approaching you, right? They're, they're being yep. clever about it, you know, and, and maybe not so much with turkey, but again, with deer, you know, they're, they're thinking about the wind and all of these different, different variables and, and how they actually choose to make their approach, you know? Yeah, um, totally. totally. Yeah. And a few, like the, the turkeys, I, I mean, it's hard to know because they, they are so careful with, before they come out into view, they use cover so carefully. 
the turkeys that I've seen that, that appear to be the ones that sort of, aside from these ones playing chicken with cars that Caleb's talking about, but the ones that, that appear to me that have kind of come charging in um, recklessly have often usually been the ones that are not legal to shoot. So what I mean by that is that they're young males. Um, often they're young males, so they're not, they're, they're, they don't have beards. So they're the ones that are, they have not kind of smartened up yet. Um, mm -hmm. But because they're young males and, and we, they're not, they're not legal to shoot. So the ones that are, the, that are legal to shoot being the older ones that are at least a couple of years old, they're careful and they're cautious and they're smart. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting because when I was doing my research on them, one thing that I found really fascinating is how big of a bird it is for how young they die. The, the, the average lifespan of a turkey in the wild is three to four years tops. It's, yeah. it's very rare for you to see a five or six year old wild turkey, whereas we've seen geese, uh, speckled belly geese get shot in North America that are 27 years old. And cranes, and yeah, cranes, mallards, even. I've seen mallards that had a band that was six and seven years old on them. And that means it was banded probably when it was already mature, which means it was at least a year or so old. So that bird could have been seven or eight years old. Uh, whereas a turkey, it's like the likelihood of it surviving to four years is impressive because everything mm -hmm. wants to kill them. The terrain is rough where they live, they live a rough life. They're fighting with each other during the breeding season. All these things are kind of stacked against them. And so, although they are very much a large bird, they have learned to survive in some of the roughest lifestyle there is. And so they're not stupid. They're not like a domestic barn turkey that will drown looking at the rain. These, these animals have learned to survive in real, with, with the cards stacked against them, frankly. And so we have to, we yeah. have to convince them that it's not just a good idea to come out, but a safe idea to come out into the open. And that's, that's the challenge that I'm seeing with turkey hunting. Yeah, I know. I agree. And, and they're, they're, they, like you said, their, their eyesight and their hearing, um, mm -hmm. they are just incredible. Uh, and it's difficult to, to fool those two things. Yeah. Um, it's you know it's tough to be i mean i've got everything i think you say because someone's going to be like well but wait i've done that or whatever but typically mm -hmm. you're not spot and stalking a turkey um you know not so usually they, no and I, of course people do it and i know someone hearing this is going to say ah got you <laughs> i know someone who's done that uh but no typically that's right exactly you're 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 what's on your side as a human hunter is get camouflaged and sit still Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, which is also incidentally a wonderful way to enjoy the spring. So, yeah. Yeah. I, as I said, on our waterfowl episode, sitting in the blind, I become a bird watcher really fast and I'm seeing a lot of activity that other animals, that's probably a reason why someone like Chris who runs nature's language and all these amazing nature awareness programs is also a hunter because sitting in a blind, you see so much activity that no one else is going to be going out in their right mind into the places that we go, uh, you'll see amazing activity of waterfowl, amazing activity of other songbirds. Uh, I've been out turkey hunting and watched coyotes dancing and playing. I've watched baby foxes jumping in puddles while turkey hunting. And it's kind of just this amazing aspect of just watching nature happen because nothing's aware that you're there because you did the right thing. You did everything right. And at the same time, you get stumped by that turkey because somehow that turkey is just a little bit more aware than everything else around it. 
you'll also it's also a great time to pattern deer i see a lot of deer when yeah. i'm turkey hunting and a lot of yeah. turkeys when i'm deer hunting but yeah it's, yes. it's a great time to kind of see what the deer are doing mm-hmm. yeah i mean the two are part of the same scouting cycle for me um i was out um on the weekend basically doing some shed hunting and i set up a bunch of trail cams specific for deer season um, but while I was out there, I was tracking turkey the whole time. I brought a barred owl call, was doing a little bit of a uh, locator calling while I was out there. Um, so that the two really pair well together, you know, mm-hmm. your, your scouting activities for both. And that locator call that Chris is talking about is sometimes called shock gobbling, uh, where you go with either a barred owl call or a crow call, and you're just going to be like, ah, ah, and suddenly this turkey off in the distance goes, Boo! they just, for some reason, respond to those sudden calls, those jarring calls. People do barred owl calls. It's one of the more common ones. You forget uh, your barred owl call. Just honk your car horn, slam yeah. the truck door loud, and yeah. it'll often do it. Yeah, that is true. I've heard people. Yeah, just well, shout. funny. I, I don't know if it's even so much the barred <laughs> owls. It is just the noise because, like, I've heard them respond to cranes, and I, and yeah. for sure, I've heard them respond to car horns yeah. and other things before too. So, mm-hmm. um, something about just that loud, loud noise on the landscape that triggers something in them, especially yeah. during the breeding season. Yeah. It's uh, it's an easy little tactic, and it's not really a tactic that's used to bring in the bird, but so like Chris was saying, it's a locator call. It's a way to figure out okay, where is that bird? And if you do that, part of your preseason scouting for birds, going out every day at different times of day and making those shock calls, especially in the early morning, late afternoon, uh, even in the evening when it's getting dark and it's not really seasonal seasonally time to go and hunt. That's a good time to see like are they where are they calling from in these spots because that could be their roost. And that's going to give you an idea of like where you should be to let set yourself up for success in the morning when the season does finally open up. Yeah, that's what I was, that's I can, what I was going to say. Oh, go ahead, Chris. Oh, uh, I was just going to add, you know, you were asking about, you know, top tricks for turkeys, but, but one of mine that I would add are things to know um, is like preseason getting out at, at sunrise uh, and mm-hmm. scouting a lot. Cause like, for example, where I live, we have tons of Turkey around here but they don't roost uh, near where I live. So I can hunt on my property. We've got 26 acres here uh, and we've actually got a garden uh, up from our house and the the turkeys will show up there and they'll dust bath in the middle of the afternoon. Um, But they're not roosting anywhere near here. And it's pretty random when they're gonna come through the garden and dust bath. So I can go and set up a blind there in my garden right near my house, but I can sit there for three days and not see a turkey. You know, it's not a very efficient or effective way for me to sit out there. and, and try and hunt there. So what I'm in the, the working on right now is trying to figure out, okay, where are they roosting? Uh, mm-hmm. Cause that's gonna be more my more strategic place to hunt. So I'm basically going out every morning. I was out at about 6.30 this morning uh, in my truck. And I literally drove to a few strategic high points on the, uh, on the land here. And I just sat there and listened and kind of did a 10 minute sit uh, in each spot. So I'd go get out of my truck. I'd sit for a couple of minutes. Uh, if I didn't hear anything after kind of like three to five minutes then I'd let out a barred owl um, locator call sit another five, 10 minutes. And then if I didn't hear anything, I move on to the next spot. And basically I'm trying to figure out where, where are they roosting and where's that kind of core habitat where I'm going to get consistent movement. Uh, and then from there I can pattern in on how they're kind of using the greater landscape outside of that, um, that habitat a little bit more strategically. For sure. And that's a First, good, can we, can we chat a little bit about just turkeys for a second? Sure. Do we yeah, have time? Totally, you got to totally. have to cut me off though, because I'll just, I'll, I'll keep going. The reason um, we brought you on is because we want you to talk about turkeys. But I think it's, it's, I think one of the things for, um, because pe- I imagine that people who don't hunt turkeys also love turkeys as much mm-hmm. as we all do, because how can you not? But yeah, I think what a lot of people sometimes forget is that wild turkeys do fly, right? Yeah. But, um, I mean, as 
I, I, I assume that Nikki's story about them flying towards her was actually just a, a terrifying nightmare, a recurring nightmare she has about turkeys. And, but they do fly. And uh, yeah, when Chris is right, when Chris is saying about the roosting, so they go up in trees at night and they sleep in trees at night. They spend their days on the ground doing all manner of turkey things and then go up in trees at night to sleep. Right. Um, and it's, it's another thing for, for, for hunting. That's right. Like finding those roost trees, Eastern turkeys, Eastern wild turkeys, there's a whole, there's a, a number of subspecies of turkeys on the continent, but Eastern turkeys will continue to use the same roost tree every night unless they get super spooked. Spooked out of there. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and this will come to another somewhat of a sort of hunting tactic in a moment, but yeah, they'll keep going to the same roost tree. So finding that roost tree is like, is money for, for knowing where to, where to find them in the morning because they'll keep going back to that tree. Mm -hmm. um, another strategy that I've used, um, which, and, and I'll admit, I haven't actually had a ton of success with the shot gobbling. Um, I haven't used really? it a ton. Well, I just haven't used it a ton. The, the properties I was hunting, I, I think I would use Chris's, I would kind of go at certain times when, I, when the light was right. And I knew, I had a sense of where they were roosting. And I, I think I was always just too scared to, to spook them off that, off that tree. Right. But what I would, what I found real successful is morning or night going at that time, right when like silhouettes seem to pop, you know, um, the sun is set enough that you're not getting as many reflections off of trees and leaves and things. Mm -hmm. um, well, the leaves aren't on the trees, which is also a part of this particular approach is getting, finding the roost trees before leaves have come out, but getting right. that time when silhouettes are real strong. And just scanning with binoculars and often what you're looking for there you will see blobs in trees i mean if you're not if you don't know what you're looking for you're wondering what black inky blobs have exploded in the trees and it's it's often a bunch of turkeys sitting in the trees and that's that's another great i mean that time of day when the light is perfect you might only have that like you know half an hour but um it's been another good one for me to to find where they're roosting it was the, the first time I actually realized that turkeys roost up in trees was I was in uh, a sugar bush uh, over in Wyerton area and it was late evening and I was just kind of wandering around getting some firewood for the next day. And I saw what I thought was a massive squirrel nest up in the tree. And it was, it was two turkeys standing beside each other on the same branch. And it wasn't until I got under that tree, it sounded like a cannonball went off over my head when they were like, Nope, this human got too close. And they took off over my head. I was like 15. And I was like, what in the hell? And I look up and I see these two gangly looking turkeys just flying over the canopy, trying to get to a new spot away from me. And from then on, I was kind of surprised, but also like it was, it was one of the most rewarding accidents that have happened in the woods. Like I, that taught me more in that 30 seconds than I have learned about turkeys any other time is the fact that they roost and they fly, but like they, they are right up there and you just got to find that spot. That's a way better way of <clears throat> describing it than my clunky way is look for what looked like a ton of squirrel nests in the tree. That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And that's I, I use that for deer hunting. When I'm out deer hunting and I'm hunting near turkeys roosted, I use that as a bit of a barometer for how loud and quiet I'm being. If I don't spook the turkeys, then I'm pretty, pretty certain pretty for the deer. confident that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I tend to, I, so this is where I was going to go with, well, anyway, I'm going to let Chris talk. You can go for it if you want. I can I can jump in after if you have a thread there you want to jump on. Go for it. Well, I was going to mention in terms of actually hunting. This is where um, this is what I would say about using the roost trees. I certainly have used the roost trees to know where to hunt, but mm -hmm. um, I would definitely say be cautious about how close you hunt to the roost yeah. tree. 
Um, so the, the, I can think of one year where we were, um, we were guiding a, a two brothers and we, I mean, the, 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 the purpose was to get these guys turkeys. There were two of them. They wanted two turkeys. So we put the ground, put a ground blind close to the roost tree and we were willing to just sort of make that sacrifice. They doubled up like literally like one, two, three shoot. And they both shot, uh, two toms at the same time. It was great. Um, now that roost tree was blown. The rest of us did not shoot a Turkey that entire season. Um, so, you know, I would just say, use that information strategically. If you're the only one hunting a property, um, yeah, get in when it is pitch black and sit near the roost tree and, and great. But if you want to continue to use that place, you, you want to be a few hundred yards away from the roost tree, mm-hmm. um, before you're shooting anything, you especially sure- in Ontario where, you, you know, in Southern Ontario or where, where, where I was, um, you got patchworks of farmland. So if you think of a 500 kilometer radius out from a roost tree or <laughs> kilometer, sorry, meter, um, there's probably another hunter sitting there anyway. So uh, they are used to disturbance. They are used to sounds, but um, yeah. And for me, like uh, trying to figure where the roost is, we've, we had uh, trail cameras. I think I told most of the folks here on the, that are with uh, me on the podcast that we set up four trail cameras in November and left it until the end of March into early April. And we pulled out 9,700 photos from those trail cameras. Majority of them were just, you know, a Queen Anne's lace billowing in the wind and setting off the trigger every 30 seconds, which is why there was 9,700 freaking photos. But there was about 350 really good photos. Many of them were in one spot that were building a food plot for deer. But then there was this one corner of the property where every day at 7.30 or 8.15 in the morning, a flock of turkeys were flying down from somewhere and landing and then walking the rest of the way down the, uh, down the driveway of the property owner's home. And I spoke to the property owner like, yeah, you're welcome to hunt turkey. So now I have a good idea of where I'm going to be simply because the fact that it's 7.50 in the morning and you're seeing them flying downwards, not like they're flying across the camera. They're coming from a 45 degree angle landing. I'm pretty sure about 40 yards to the right of the camera is where their roost is. I'm not sure which cedar tree they're in. They are definitely in a cedar tree because there's nothing really else over there. But on the other side of the road from that spot is where we see them in the fields in the hunting season during deer season you'll see 30 turkeys in that field all together. And it looks like, like I've always described them when they're out in the middle of the fields as like these tiny Buffalo moving across the prairies. They just look at these big Brown blobs, just like Paul said earlier, moving across the fields. And they're just picking up the scrap corn or the scrap uh, winter wheat that's on the ground that they're picking away at. And it's that simple thing of just simply putting a, a trail camera up for a long period to start getting a cycle pattern of what these animals are doing. Cause I can't necessarily get to that property. It's a 40 minute drive from my house. I can't get there every day to scout and keep an eye on it and track them and do my shock gobbles and scout around and watch with binoculars. It's a lot of work for me to get in there. And so setting up a trail camera for long periods and then checking it sporadically, it gave me a huge spectrum of timing of when these birds show up in that spot. I got a four or five months like glimpse at their life cycle for just this, you know, 20 yard wide area of what they're doing in that area. And it's fascinating, very fascinating. And again, they don't come back in the evening that way, which was the part that gave me an interesting uh, perspective. I thought they would, you know, walk out into the fields, eat in those fields and then walk the path right back. No, they're circling back from somewhere else. 
So I know where they are on that property in the morning. So that's where I'm going to stage myself in the morning is a field over from where they, uh, they seem to be roosting. Uh, but I'm not going to go there for the evening. I got to figure out still where their evening roost is or not their evening, but their evening uh, feeding area may be. And that's my next challenge. Beyond that, of the scouting and the preseason and the, and the mid-season training and all that kind of stuff, looking around and scouting, what's some equipment that you recommend for, the, the, uh, for a successful hunt? What kind of things do you recommend people carry? What do you guys think are some good things to have with you if you're out turkey hunting? I just, I just want to throw one more thing in before we sure. switch gears over sure. to, to equipment there and, and just talking about the habitat piece again. So we've been talking about roosts as a key area to dial in on, but then the other two are water source and food. And, you know, that's kind of just universal in hunting in general, right? Uh, with your animal, sure. I mean, that whatever your target species is, there's kind of these four things. There's, there's where do they sleep or where do they seek shelter and where do they do it in different weather? Uh, there's what are they eating and what are they eating different times of the year? Where are they drinking? Um, and then mating season, how does it kind of affect the flow of those things? And what are the trails between them? And really, when I'm, when I'm thinking about scouting, that's the formula there. You know, you want to find, locate those three things, and then you want to find the travel corridors in between them. And if you do that, um, you know, that, that's a massive part of what hunting is right there. It's just patterning in on those parts on the landscape, you know. Uh, and where I've been hunting turkey that, the last couple of years, um, so they roost uh, up in the, in the high hardwoods. Uh, and they're feeding on the acorns up there, both in the fall and the ones that are left over in the springtime. And mm. I actually set up on a tiny little creek uh, in this little hemlock valley. And what happens is the turkeys will fly off of the roost first thing in the morning and they'll feed up on that hill a little bit. But then inevitably, by about midday, they tend to drop down in this valley, um, come get some shade from the sun, uh, and they come down there to drink. Uh, so I'm set up in there. So I'm actually, yeah, maybe three, four hundred yards away from where they're roosting. But I know pretty predictably, like almost every day, they drop down into this little valley there. So, so mm -hmm. finding the water source and knowing where they're eating and they're roosting is just is a, it's a huge tool of starting to pattern in on for your landscape there. And then, of course, if you live in in field country, that's huge too. You know, when uh, when are their their seed out in the field or grain out in the field that they're eating? Because a lot of turkey hunters, that's what they do. You know, they just sit on the edge of fields, um, and and harvest them coming out in the field there. I, I tend to hunt in the forest. Uh, but that's just the habitat I live up here that we don't have a lot of farm, farm country around here. So for sure. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you want to say anything on that, Paul, or we could dive into the gear question that Caleb just asked. No, I don't have anything to add to that. That was, I, I'm, I was sort of the flip side from you is that I typically hunted fields, um, mm. either fallow fields or, uh, uh, kind of adjacent to active fields. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, so I never really got great at, um, hunting in brush and in the forest i was I typically on fields um, field edges so it's super interesting to hear about how you're using water sources because because I, I would typically think more about when i would do about those kind of former things you were talking about about connections and travel routes between okay roost tree to you know an okay. area of rolling i mean where i hunted was around uh keen ontario so you had those kind of moraine country there so they they had a lot of folds and rolls to be able to use uh, the kind of the terrain for for travel corridors getting to uh food sources so mm -hmm. it's super interesting for me to kind of hear how you're talking about using the the forest in similar ways but totally different um mm -hmm. kind of habitats and stuff so that's that's cool i've never I, i've never been able to sort of figure out using water sources at all for them so i like that um, that was interesting to hear right on 
Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's kind of fun. That's one of my favorite things about hunting is just like the relationship that you form with habitat and your understanding of habitat and how different species use it. I, I find it so, so fascinating, but I it's actually started so, yeah. hunting in Southern Ontario. Um, and when I first started hunting, I started hunting turkeys actually with a stick bow. And ironically, it was probably around 2008 as well. Um, and I saw tons of turkey, but we were hunting fields then. And the problem was setting yourself up where they were coming in and out of the, the field. And I, I actually never hunted a turkey or harvested a turkey my first three, four years of hunting them with a stick bow. Um, and I saw tons of them, but I just could never get close enough with the bow. Now, if I had a shotgun, uh, I would have made lots of harvest there while they were out in the field. Uh, jump forward, you know, whatever, 12, 15 years here now. Now I'm hunting in a totally different habitat. I'm in the northern forest and I'm hunting with a shotgun where I've got this range, but the habitat is so different now and you're hunt I'm hunting it way different. And the same goes true with deer, you know, the, the tactics that we use down south uh, are so different than what we what I'm using up here, you know, in the way they utilize the landscape. But those that shelter, food, water, I mean, those are just principles that are universal. Uh, so you just got to figure out how do you apply those to your unique habitat, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and then I think that the dynamics between those a bit, right? Like, I think you were saying earlier, Chris, around, someone was saying around, around um, you know, that they don't, you don't have the sense of smell that, for example, deer, and especially things like bears do. So I find that I, you're, you're thinking about the same features, right? Uh, food and shelter and, and what have you, but the, um, how that, how, what determines their movement through those things differently, where, um, things like deer and bear are going to use wind a lot differently. Most often when I've seen turkeys, all I see is their head bobbing up between from on the other side of a hill. Mm -hmm. um, so they're not using wind so much because they don't, they're not smelling, but they are certainly using the terrain as cover. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they're, it's, yeah, yeah I, I, that's one of my favorite things. And it's, and it's what draws me to be, such a mediocre generalist hunter <laughs> rather than <laughs> perhaps a, an exceptional specialist one is I, I like to be, I like to, I just find that so interesting between seasons. Um, I like messing up between species like that because it's like, now I got to try and think about wind and then Turkey season comes around. And it's like, well, I'm not thinking about wind as much, but I'm definitely thinking about um, getting in using terrain, maybe a bit differently. Um, and uh, I find that I would, I find that I am okay with not being successful at hunting because of the uh, intellectual curiosity that I get from that stuff. So um. it's, it's definitely a big game of chess with any target animal and Turkey. I find is kind of like waterfowl is like checkers deer and other big game. I look at as like classic chess and Turkey from what I've been able to figure out. Cause again, I didn't grow up Turkey hunting. I just kind of like, I'd be coming back from waterfowl hunting in season and I would happen across a turkey that was just in my way and I have the right kind of ammo in the shot in the shotgun <clears throat> it was a legal bird took it I never really really targeted them but over the last year since I started to really be fascinated by the idea of turkey hunting I've realized if waterfowl or chess and big game are your uh, sorry if uh, if waterfowl or checkers and big game or chess I would look at Turkey as like Star Trek four-dimensional chess, where it's got those different stages and levels because there's so many different like nuances to them compared to other animals where you just have to be able to plan the next two stages. Whereas with Turkey, it seems to be like you got to plan four or five stages ahead. You got to really know like, okay, they're going to come in through here. They are looking for me. 
whereas a deer is going to just trust its ears and nose. So I can betray its ears and nose very easily by muffling my sound, using cover sounds like a squirrel movement sound in the squirrel call. And with their sense of smell, cover my scent as best I can with proper natural smells and then keeping myself downwind. With turkey, I have to be extremely still at every given moment because at any moment that perfectly camouflaged animal may be looking at me when I'm sitting there thinking that I'm perfectly camouflaged looking for it. So it's definitely uh, another level of chess that I find very fascinating. Um, and as we said already, like you learn so much from just being out on the landscape, even if you're not a successful hunter, even if you didn't see a turkey at all that day or any animal that you're targeting, you're still going to learn a ton, a crap ton of everything that's out there. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm sitting here in an open field and there's nothing really out here, but 20 yards that way is an oak forest full of acorn. And over there is an orchard with a bunch of overripe apples that are already chewed up by something. I should go look at those. Oh my God, there's tracks and feathers everywhere. And now I know what I'm going to do the next day. I can, I can plan ahead for the next step because they won the game that day. I'm going to try again the next day. It totally is. And like, is it too much of a cliche at this point to, to love turkey hunting because it is that perfect meeting point between small game and big game, but you know, yeah. but it really is. It's like, it's just, it, it's all of the best elements of, of both of them. I find. And that's what I'm realizing that like, as I said, for years, every time I took friends out and they're getting into hunting, they're like, what do you think of Turkey? hunting?" I'd be like, ah, dude, it's a very expensive, a lot of time expense and you don't get a lot of animals out of it. Like I could spend the same amount of time and bag five or six geese or a dozen ducks with a friend, or I could go out and get one deer that is the equivalent of like four or five turkeys of meat or more. Why would I turkey hunt? And then this past year, I've been sitting here going, you know what? I've dialed in my waterfowl over the last 15 years. I've dialed in. I've been hunting. I found out, I, I realized this coming fall will be my 20th year of hunting, which tells you like I've, I've taken a lot of animals in that time, but I've never intended on turkey. And I felt like that's kind of a rude thing to the bird especially that I like the birds. I love turkey, but I've like never given them the time or day. It's like, just, it feels rude to do that to them when I'm out there actively hunting everything else. I'm almost saying like, you're not worth my time. And so I guess I said like nine months ago, I started really researching it, watching documentaries, watching videos on YouTube, reading books about them, reading articles about them, picking guys' brains like Paul. And now I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I think I'm ready to try and attempt to get a turkey this spring. I think I'm ready now. I, I'm not sure if I actually will get a turkey this year. That's why it's called hunting, not killing. But I feel like I am prepared. I feel like I am ready to take that step and take the shot if I get that shot. So on that line, if we have everything that we, we've now done, our scouting, we've done our pre-game uh, our, our pre preparations, we've done all of our due diligence to make sure everything's done right and safely. Again, I ask that question, what do we need with us out there? Because a lot of people look at turkey hunting, as I said, as the expensive hunt. For North Americans, because you need to have, if you listen to everybody out there, you need the best decoys on the market, you need the best calls, you need the best ammunition, you need the best, you need special parts for your gun if you're using a firearm. And we're going to talk about firearms on this one because I, I uh, we can talk about bows a little bit, but it's not my experience with bow hunting for turkey. I've never really bow hunted birds much, uh, other than the occasional grouse with a field point. Uh, what do we need to know for hunting? Because it seems like a really expensive project. For a lot of people and i and i feel like that's a stupid thing to think for me because i've been saying it for years it's an expensive way to hunt and now i'm sitting here thinking you know what? it can't be that expensive i can probably get by with 
minimalist equipment. So if we were to just start off and we want to do a budget turkey hunt, what are like the top five things you would recommend someone carry? And I'm going to leave that for both Chris and Paul to answer. So you guys have each five items that you could recommend to people to take with them for, for turkey hunt. I think that's a pretty fair amount for each of you, especially if you choose different things. Sure. Sure. All right. Sure. You, want to, you want to start sure. first? Chris? Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, I could jump in there. Um, so let's see. I mean, first off, you need your weapon. Um, now I have harvested. It's funny. I hunt, as I mentioned, I hunted turkey for years with the with the homemade bow uh, and never was never successful. And then I took a number of years off. Um, and then my first turkey, I actually harvested with a crossbow. Um, so just the first one would be your weapon, and you know, a bow, a crossbow, or a shotgun. All are are viable uh, tools to work with. Mm -hmm. um, this year, I'll probably be hunting a little bit with the, the crossbow and a little bit with the, the shotgun. Uh, I use a, a 12 gauge and 870. Um, so yeah, step number one is you need your tool, but I don't actually have much of fancy gear beyond that. I mean, I've got my weapon uh, and you've got, I've got really good camo and, and more so with deer, you know, are, are way mm -hmm. more so I'm focused on my camo than I am with deer. Mm -hmm. um, when I first started hunting deer, you know, I used to just go all out, you know, like full on, like woodland camo and charcoal up my face and whatever. And I did that for years and years. Yeah. And now like I would walk out and hunt deer with yeah. what I'm wearing right now, you know, um, and, and feel pretty comfortable with that, you know, um, maybe, maybe I would rub a little bit of charcoal on my face or something just to take a little bit of the shine out of it. But with Turkey, you really got to be careful. Their eyesight is phenomenal. And it even goes as far as like, what's, uh, what's on the bottom of my foot. I actually bow hunting one year i was camoed up head to toe and i didn't realize uh, i was wearing a pair of sneakers that day and they were black so i thought oh this should be good and i didn't realize there was a little patch of red on the bottom and i'm oh. literally sitting on the ground and i lifted my foot up ever so slightly and totally tom's head went up he started clucking everyone was gone you know mm -hmm. uh, and they were just out of there um so so my number two really is uh my set of camo um to go with um, number three, I think it, it's worthwhile to have a call. Um, so I, I just bring out a little, a little hen claw. It's actually the same one that I think you got there, uh, Caleb. And, and I totally agree with Paul. Um, again, when I first started hunting, I, I, uh, I called like crazy, both for deer and Turkey, uh, and very rarely saw animals. It didn't have a lot of success. Now I call very little, uh, and have a lot more success. Um, but really th that's all I think you need in some ways. I mean, uh, I haven't done a lot of turkey hunting with decoys. So I'm curious if Paul works with decoys a lot. Um, I actually just bought my first set of decoys this season. And, um, like you said, at the beginning, Caleb, I mean, uh, my focus, I've done a lot of waterfowl. I've done a ton of deer hunting. Uh, I've done a ton of small game hunting. Uh, I wouldn't say that, um, I'm an expert at Turkey by any means, you know, Turkey has been right. something I've dabbled in. Uh, whereas like deer hunting has been like what I've, I've really poured the last 15 years into. Totally. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I don't have a ton of experience with decoys, but uh, this year I'm basically adding a couple decoys to my mix. Uh, but decoys are expensive, you know, and that's yes. where like the prices start going up. So, so really I'm going to, I'm going to say that there's only three things that I really bring Caleb, mm -hmm. uh, my gun, my good camo and a call. And, and, and that's kind of my setup. Fair enough. Uh, oh, you know what? Actually, sorry. I'll throw number four. I backpack with with some basic survival gear you know uh, a yeah. water bottle a flashlight if i end out in the woods after dark a compass to make sure i don't get lost uh you know a little bit of food uh, a lighter so i can light a fire a little first aid kit uh this nowadays unfortunately like a tick kit you know some tweezers so if i end yeah. up with a tick on me i can pull it out of me so I, i'd actually throw in more just like a, a backpack with some survival gear is my number four on there totally i'll pass it over to you there paul i, I do want to add you can, on you can steal my number five if you want 
I do want to add on to the firearm uh, with that is I do actually do, uh, I do strongly recommend getting the right kind of ammo for turkey because they are a tank of a bird, but also the, unlike waterfowl where we have to be restricted to steel shot or non-toxic shot, you can use heavier ammunition like bismuth and such on, on waterfowl totally. But from what I've been looking in and what I've been looking at is uh, stuff like heavy shot that's made with bismuth. Uh, usually in the number five category of ammunition. That's the one thing I would add to firearms. And with that, the time of patterning your shotguns, do you know what you're capable of doing at certain ranges? And I think that's where the decoy really comes into play is for me, what I've been trying to figure out with my tactic is I, I actually spent the money this year on a really good, I think it's a pattern master uh, code black shotgun choke for Turkey specifically. Uh, same brand that I use for my waterfowl. I love chokes because they help me dial in my actual spread of my shot of uh, my shotgun. And from there, my goal is to figure out where is the best pattern at what range. And that's where I'm going to basically set up my turkey decoy if I have one. And that's going to kind of like almost be like a like a, a marker for me of okay, that turkey is now near my decoy, so I know it's at this specific range. I can take that shot, and I know it's going to kill. Uh, that's where I think decoys are really beneficial more than just simply bringing in the bird but actually it's a simple way to mark and set up and say hey there's a bird here this is the range it's at this is where it's gonna be a good shot and for those who don't know you don't actually want to shoot them in the chest most animals that we hunt we're aiming for what's called the boiler room which is the heart and lung area on big game especially small game as well uh even to a degree waterfowl is that's kind of where i'm aiming because the heads are very small targets where a turkey, that's where all the meat is. So if I put all my shot in there, and they also have a massive breastbone that's like armor. So if I put in a weaker shot at that spot at a further range, that bird's not going to die. I'm just maiming and injuring it. So the best shot that is recommended by most folks, and there's two different opinions on, is base of the neck or base of the skull are the two places that everybody seems to agree are the safest places to take your shots on those birds. And those are like a turkey's neck really is the, is the diameter of my finger, not including the feathers and everything in there. It's about the, from my finger to my thumb is their actual meat there. So I have to hit that at 30 yards or 25 yards effectively and put enough pellets in there to drop that bird. So spread, uh, you're going to be using a shotgun. If you're using a shotgun, you have to have spread shot. That's the right size or right kind of, for lack of a better term, caliber, even though it's not a rifle. Uh, for that bird and then you have to get it into the right spot and pattern it so that's more about the training and the techniques with that technology um and it's it, it you can use an inexpensive shotgun you could use a break action single shot that you bought from a that's an antique for 50 dollars to 110 dollars at an at an at a firearm shop and if you got the right choke and you patterned it with the right ammunition you can take turkey because it's not like waterfowl where you're gonna be dropping seven to uh, seven to eight a day or even in one shot, in one take. It's, you're taking basically one to two shots on that bird, one preferably, maybe two, if that bird's not down for the count. So a single, like, again, for inexpensive, uh, from an inexpensive ex experience, you can go with a single shot, cheap shotgun and still take birds. So as long as you pattern it and get the right ammo. I actually should add that as my number five, actually. And this year is the first year that I actually put a turkey choke on. Um, so I've always um, shot with a with just the modified cylinder that comes with my 870 right. and, and I've harvested birds in the past. Uh, and uh, this year I bought a, a turkey choke. Uh, so like a full choke or, or I guess you call it like an extra full choke. Yeah. Uh, and I was out actually last night um, just sighting in. Now I was only sighting in at 20 yards uh, and really at 20 yards, any choke is going to do the job. Um, yeah. 
but it, it was really significant how many more shot were actually landing right on target with the full choke or the turkey choke versus yeah. the modified choke like it was significant like it it's, probably it's at 20 yards it probably increased the amount of shot landing by 20 25 percent so at 30 or 40 yards that that's going to really be significant right totally um, it was so I'll just leave it there. The other thing I'll say, I know, Paul, you got to answer that question, but for folks using fa Caleb's uh, finger thing there, just for reference, like his fingers are about twice the size of mine. If you're thinking about the tricky mic reference, so that might just be helpful for scale there. I keep forgetting that I have like boxer mitts for hands. I always forget that. Um, I was doing a photo for a track and I use my hand as a scale and people are like, that doesn't help Caleb. So I was like, oh, right. I have to use like a lighter or something that's actually like universally acceptable. Um, when we're talking about choke, so what a choke is for those that don't understand, it's a, it's an insertion at the end of the muzzle of the gun that tightens the diameter. So it's, it becomes a narrower diameter at the very end of the gun. So that when all those pellets come flying out, they get held together tighter so that when they get to the target, there's more of them in one square inch area. So if we are using a, a regular, what's called an open cylinder or a plain cylinder shotgun at 20 yards, you might have a spread that's two and a half feet wide. Whereas with a full choke or an extended full choke, like a turkey choke, you might have a six inch group of pellets. And that's kind of the goal is the way it's getting more pellets in one area so that you can be more effective at killing. Cause one pellet is not going to kill the bird. Four or five might kill the bird. 10 will definitely kill the bird. And that's kind of the goal with chokes. And I never really took those into consideration until two years ago on goose hunts, where I know if I was using lead shot, those birds would have been dead but they kept on flying because the steel shot was too light to really do much damage. And so I bought myself, uh, again, a pattern master code black for duck and we took it to the range and I just patterned it. And I was lethal at 50 yards, which I, even with, with lead, I would have never considered myself that lethal. Uh, and with modern ammunitions, it's incredible. Like, like a choke is in my opinion, necessary for successful hunting with a shotgun is a, is a good choke of the right size for the right kind of animal you're hunting and on that paul would you like Should to we pass that question back to paul yeah. there caleb yeah i like how you nonchalantly caleb you're like oh, i don't know what choke i got maybe a pattern master it's like the sweetest turkey choke and you're just like casually I, modestly being like oh i think it, it might be a pattern man you've got the cadillac even, of chokes it's not even being like modest it's because i can't remember if it was called the brand was code black or the brand was pattern master so i was trying to remember which right. one was the actual name the make is yeah. pattern master the model is code black so that's yeah, i uh, i totally agree with everything you guys said around chokes and patterning um can i just say real funny, quick that can i just say yeah. real quick that's funny that you think i would ever be modest um you're so charming <laughs> um, yeah it's sort of funny when people will get into turkey hunting like as their first hunt which is which is what i did because turkey load uh is the hardest hitting ammo you will ever shoot i broke the buttstock of my shotgun on my shoulder shooting oh. turkey load um because yeah like you said so you by law you need to shoot um sizes four five six or seven for turkeys yeah. right so so just to put it in perspective, I mean, I, I shoot, I use size two shot for geese and seven and a half for small game, but I always use four or five for turkey. Mm -hmm. um, I just always wanted something that was, that, that I knew was going to hit hard. Um, yeah, the patterning thing is super key. I definitely gone out and shot my gun and aimed at it right at the, the, the target of the turkey. 
and you know just found that that you have to adjust your aim because um you just have you yeah like you said you have to get those pellets in the in the head um anyway okay so five things i I don't have much to add um i always did use uh decoys the guy who guys who taught me to hunt caleb you know them the york the york bitches um Mm -hmm. They're big on on decoying. They gave me some great advice, um, and that's who they were the, the company, the guiding company that I kind of worked for. That was guide um, the game, right? Yeah, exactly. And they gave me some great advice in in terms of uh, decoys, which is to, that that you kind of have to match the decoys with the to the flock and the dynamics of the of the turkeys you have in your area. Hmm. So similar to um, deer hunting, oh, I won't go down that that rabbit hole. But so what they would, the, the advice they gave me was if you have a, a whole bunch of big dominant toms in the area, right? You, you have multiple roost trees and you have toms coming out and competing, right? Yeah. For, for hens, then yeah, throw a big tom ter- decoy out, throw a big tom with a huge tail fan, ideally a, a real fan and bring that tom in to challenge it. In some of the areas, the areas that we did a lot of our hunting were high pressure areas. There were small plots of land. Um, with a lot of everyone hunted um, mm-hmm. it was all private land so in those areas um, it was less about challenging the tom with another giant tom and it was more about attracting a legal bird to a hen mm-hmm. so some of the i mean there were years certainly that people shot absolute you know tankers of toms but often it was um you know, it wasn't super dominant toms that people were shooting. So we would, we, yeah, I'd bring decoys, um, but it's I, most often it's a single hen or yeah. a couple of hens at absolute most. I've rarely, rarely used, and I've never had success using. So I should, I should say this. I've never had success using in that area where I hunted a big dominant Tom hmm. um, decoy, a dominant. Um, and so I typically would use, uh, if I'm using multiple decoys, it was two hens and a Jake. And this is a pretty common, well-known. I was about to say that's what like the love triangle is called. It's referred to as the love triangle, right? Two, two hens and a, um, and a Jake. And what you're doing yeah, exactly is your, your other Jakes will challenge them or you or big Toms will come in to just thrash them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it is great to watch a Turkey just beat the living shit out <laughs> of a decoy. Um, but yeah, most, if I'm going like, when we would go, super lightweight it was a, i used a, a box call mm-hmm. which is just like a, a yeah i don't know how to describe this i mean it's, it's a like little a, it's, a it's a little yeah well yeah it would be a paddle that you slide across a um, oh yeah 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 sort of paddle a three-sided calls. sort of looks like a, a mini coffin um and and it's and it just it squeaks because you, you can make all the different hen calls with that so i would use that um yeah, there you go. So this is the other thing is you're not making gobbles when you hunt. Well, no. I, I don't, and I know there are different schools of thought here, but typically it's hen calls mm-hmm. you're making to draw in um, males. So I would, if I'm going lightweight, it's a single collapsible like foam hen decoy mm-hmm. and um, a box call um, and a book. I, I often because I find if I'm sitting there reading a book on turkey hunting, I stay still. I don't move as much, so I um, I actually That's do a, good bring idea. a book when I'm turkey hunting. Um, other than that, yeah, I'm with you guys. I mean, that's one thing I actually really enjoy about turkey hunting is it's so lightweight um, and it's yeah. so easy to just be mobile and move. I don't do the whole turkey vest 
thing I, with the, I, I will bring, uh, if I'm those. feeling really bougie that day, I'll bring a little foam butt pad. Um, mm. I typically like to get my ticks out when I get home at the end of the day, which is actually what I would do is get home and then you, pluck. no, I'm just joking about waiting, <laughs> but I am being serious about plucking ticks out. And I yeah. agree with Chris, check for ticks when you get home. Um, the last few years, I, the last couple of years I lived in Ontario and Turkey hunted. I mean, it was just, I, I knew two things at the end of the season. I was going to have poison ivy and I was going to have ticks. So, um, yep. Yeah. So definitely I agree with that. Um, I'm just not as smart as Chris. I don't, <laughs> I don't prepare to do it in the field. And that's something yeah. we got to, that's something we got to kind of to take into consideration is like the, the numbers of ticks have, have increased a lot in our region. Um, totally off topic, but on the subject of ticks, Last spring, our dog was out in the sugar bush with me for one day without being treated for ticks. And she had 12 ticks on her. And then this past July, we got her diagnosed with Lyme's disease. Mm. So one day yeah. with the tick populations that we have out here is enough to get infected with that stuff. So tick checks, tick gear. There's even clothing now, hunting gear that's coming out that has treated with permethrin, uh, which protects you from ticks, but also from mosquitoes. I've yeah. seen guys where the mosquito literally lands on their shirt and crumples up and dies before it ever touched them. And they were just sitting perfectly still. And that's a great, that could just be the, that could just be the don't shower until the end of Turkey season <laughs> approach. Um, no, but yeah, I uh, actually, that's a good, so that's another thing that I would often do is get changed before even getting in my truck at the end of the day, I'd get out to get yeah. out of the field and get changed like at the truck and, and, and shake my clothes out and, and get the ticks off me. Um, yeah. If again, I, I think, so those would be the only, I, I think the three things, I mean, you guys covered, yeah. Weapon and ammo for sure. Um, I also always use your approach, Caleb, of I set the decoy up 20 yards out or 30 yards out from where I'm sitting. And I use a, I'll use a range finder um, and walk out from the tree or wherever the ground blind or whatever, and range myself out and set the decoy up exactly there. And then I can use the decoy as a range finder, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so like, you know, you could say to bring a rangefinder, but I mean, when I set the ground blind up, I just know I, I check then or, or choose a tree. I check then where the thing is, where the, the distance is. Um, if you're hunting turkeys later in the season, uh, bring a thermocell, get, do yourself a favor and buy a thermocell and bring that out because the mosquitoes will drive. It, you have to sit still. And um, I don't think it's, it's, I don't think it's super spoiled to say, you know, um, bring something that'll keep the mosquitoes out of your eyeballs so that you're not swatting away and moving too much yeah and, and that's and I, I mean i've i've absolutely blown turkey hunts and gone gone home because i know i'm just moving too much trying to keep mosquitoes off me mm -hmm. out of my eyes and mouth so yeah so the the things that i would add on for my kit if i was to bring them up because you we've made a great list already the two things that i think i would definitely bring uh it's kind of like a build on to the camouflage conversation is a camo net of some sort that's small and portable so that if I find myself, uh, let, let's say I've set up a ground blind, but the turkeys aren't coming in, I'm walking back to the truck and I see that they're set up and staged up in another field, I can crawl up or sneak up to that fence or that tree line, put up that net just very casually and quietly and get behind that so that now I'm ready in a new spot and I didn't have to drag the whole blind with me to do that. And the second part with camouflage is something that I've really fallen in love with for the last like I don't know, six years since Paul showed it to me was a, a head net that covers over my hat. And that head net that he recommended, I can't find them anymore. The maker doesn't seem to be around anymore. Uh, it's actually, it was, it would conform over a ball cap 
and it was complete no see mosquito netting that's camouflaged so that I can see through it, but the mosquitoes can't get to me, the black flies can't get to me, but also I wear glasses. As everybody is watching right now, who's on the call with me, you can see this glare coming off my glasses as I move my head around with the lights in the room that I'm in. That's going to be giving, it's like a signal mirror. So someone who wears glasses, a head net that fully covers your eyes is really beneficial, but you don't want to have something that's going to, you know, make you fog up too much. Those nice open nets that are preferably mosquito or at least, at least mosquito proof are a lifesaver on the hunt. Uh, some guys also tell me that they grow out their beards just for turkey hunting because it helps break up their neck, their neck shape and everything. Uh, Paul can't grow a beard to save his life. So I can't recommend that to him. But uh, one thing I did want to mention that we, that uh, Paul mentioned, uh, said a couple of things and Chris said these same words. And I'm wondering if people may not know what they are. What's a Jake? What's a Tom? And so what they are from what I understand is a Tom is a fully mature bird uh, very large bird, their beard, uh, and what the beard is for those that are curious, is not like ours, is what it is, is this growth that comes out of the base of their neck and their chest that is a group of uh, underdeveloped feathers, sometimes called a scale. It's an evolutionary mutation that turkeys have that the males usually carry, but not always, not always just males. Uh, it, and it's just this spur that comes out of their throat of just this tassel of scaly quills. And that is what we actually use to indicate that that's a legal bird to shoot. If it doesn't have a beard, we're not supposed to be taking it because that's usually indicated that they're either a hen or an immature male. And that's what a Jake is. A Jake is an immature or adolescent male. Some areas, as long as they still have some sort of beard, they would can be considered legal because as long as it's got a beard, it's a legal bird. So a Jake can have a beard. It just may not be a massive, long, you know, throat decoration that comes out of their chest. Uh, but a tom is going to be these massive birds and often the tips of their wing feathers are worn down because they're dragging those feathers when they're in, in display they're dragging them on the ground and they're getting worn down and they're going to have that massive thing sticking out of their throat and that's what we would consider a tom so a tom turkey is a big mature bird a jake is a smaller lesser mature male and then a hen is obviously going to be a female of, of any age can be a hen so yeah, and there's other you can you can look at. There's some indications in tail feathers to tell between a Jake and a Tom. Oh um, yeah, yeah. You'll see as, as the yeah when they're young the, the 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 sort of center portion of the tail feathers. So when turkeys when turkeys get all um, fanned out, all fired up and horny, um, they'll they'll display they'll they'll puff up and they're, they'll scrape their wings on the ground. It's not dissimilar to what human males do really um <laughs> they puff all up and they strut around and uh yeah but um you can look at their tail feathers right and you'll see the jakes will have this sort of uneven section of tail feathers often right. in, the, in their tail and then um that'll even out when they get older so um, a, tom, a, a tom's gonna have a almost a perfect arch of a tail yeah band. The bands will line up more yeah whereas a jake it's gonna look more like i don't know a gap tooth grin if you're thinking about that, it's going to, it's going to look kind of uneven. It's going to look kind of ragged. It's not going to look very pretty. And so that's kind of a, another way to look at like, since we're aiming for Tom, it's kind of a, a, a bonus. Cause that's why a lot of people, they like, if we're out trophy hunting, people are going to take the heads of their deer, the antlers of their deer and display those. Uh, if they're taking a goose or a duck, that's beautiful and big. They're going to get that whole bird stuffed. Very few people get the head of their Turkey stuffed, but I know a lot of people that have that tail fan on their wall 
spread out and set up to look as beautiful as it can. So if you're looking for that perfect display that you've hunted, something to show how successful a hunter you are, that's another reason to aim for those toms. Even though a Jake may be legal, that tom is going to look a lot more pretty on your wall. Even though I myself don't have any real trophies on my wall, I don't really go for that. I'm mostly just strictly a meat hunter. It is an extra bonus that if you're going for the right bird, it's going to look really, really nice too. They're very pretty birds. And turkeys in general are pretty birds. They're their pattern of their feathers are so different than anything else I've really seen. The closest I could compare it to is something that's like a pheasant in their, their, their variety of feather colors. You'll have that classic banded Turkey fan of their tail with some iridescence in the middle and the white tips are like almost like tufts on the end. And then you're going to have their chest feathers that are this iridescent Brown bronze, almost all over. And then the wings have that zebra stripe or sorry, zebra stripe because we don't call them zebra, the name's zebra, if you listen to anybody from Africa, uh, just because we wouldn't call a woman in the office Debra, her name is Deborah. Uh, and so when we look at that pattern on their fan compared to the pattern on their wing, compared to the pattern on their chest, compared to the skin color of their heads, they're just a really pretty bird. And even if you don't get a chance to shoot one, but you see one in the field fully strutted out, it's, they're beautiful, they're gorgeous. Everyone's laughing because I said Debra, I think. Yeah, they are. They're yeah, all I laughed way too hard at that on mute, thankfully. Everybody was um, muted, just laughing. I mean, like, oh, no, I God. agree with you about how beautiful they are. Um, yeah, people people sometimes want to hunt turkeys because they feel like they're not going to find them beautiful, right? They don't necessarily feel like mm -hmm. they could hunt a deer because they're, they're too, you know, charismatic and, and beautiful. And uh, often when people hunt turkeys and they change their minds pretty quick, they haven't seen, they haven't, people haven't seen wild turkeys in person. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. And they just have, they're just, so, they're so fascinating. Totally. And the last thing I kind of wanted to really bring up is like, because we don't want to make this episode go too long. We're already at well over an hour. And I know that Paul's got to get back to work very soon. Um, the last thing I kind of want to mention is a lot of people, when they eat wild turkey for the first time, they're not impressed with it. Um, if you look at like domestic turkey, they're a very dry bird. Uh, like Thanksgiving turkeys can easily be destroyed by just overcooking them and making it very dry and making and not doing all the due diligence to make it taste great. Think of that as wild turkey on the same way, but on steroids, a turkey that works for a living and survives for a living is going to be a very tough and very dry tasting bird. So brining them uh, in a good wet brine for a long enough period, like with ducks, I'll brine them for a couple of hours. With a turkey, I brine them for a day minimum. And it's also why a lot of people cook them with bacon. They'll wrap them with bacon. They'll make like a lattice and cover them with bacon so that there's some fat that can penetrate into the meat. Other people will poke them full of holes and inject uh, marinades into them, things like that. Other people will lift the skin. After they pluck it, they'll lift the skin and put oranges in there or lemons in there to help give it some juice simply because they are quite a dry bird. Uh, what I actually like is to separate the bird. I don't cook them whole. Uh, I'll take the legs and I'll brine them in a vacuum bag for several days because the leg is being used. It's, a, it's, it's being worked. So that leg is not going to be, you know, very juicy like the dark meat we're used to on Thanksgiving. So I'm going to brine it for several days and then I'm going to either slow cook it, like braise it, or I'm going to uh, smoke it. Uh, that's my preference is smoked turkey legs. I'm not sure that's because I've been down in Toronto during the Christmas holidays or not, but I really do like a smoked turkey leg. It's one of my preferences. And then the breast meat, 
honestly, as much as everybody loves their just sliced turkey breast that's on a sandwich, I actually like making pulled turkey. I, I take the whole breast and I put it into a slow cooker with a bunch of sauces and I slow cook it for the whole day and it comes out nice and tender and I'll shred that and I'll put that on top of a sandwich. That's how I like to cook my turkeys. Other people, they'll deep fry them. Sure, you can do that. I'm not against that whatsoever. It's not my preference. The wings are the hardest part for me to find what I like to do with them. And usually I just end up tossing them in with the legs. But I think that there's other better ways to cook the wings. I just haven't found them yet. Uh, what's your favorite way to cook up turkey, Paul? Um, brining. Brine, absolutely brine them. Um, and yeah, turkeys, it, they're... Um, it's a much darker meat, right? Like, mm. uh, but also tends to be somewhat dry. The turkeys, because they're not flying massive distances, they're they have much more kind of slow twitch muscle fiber. So they're, yeah, they're, the meat is tends to be darker than what you might expect for a white meat, I guess. Um, mm. But also can, yeah, it can dry out quickly. So um, yeah, absolutely, Brian. I cannot agree with that more. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I like to, I, I've done them grilled, uh, just grilling the breasts. Really? Um, and I love it. Yeah. yeah. Um, spices and, and on the grill. Um, nice. I've also done it. I'm trying to think like I've done something in um, a more, not slow cooked, but an oven roast that is slower cooked. Um, so like almost than, like grazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, also great, but um yeah, they're, they're, they're fantastic. Um, I've never done it pulled though. I've never done that. It's great. It's great. Yeah. It's what I do with a lot of small game in generals. I find it, it goes further as well. When you cook the whole carcass slow and low, and then just rip all the meat off and shred that mm -hmm. up. It, it goes a lot. Like I'll do like pulled rabbit or I'll do pulled squirrel the same kind of way. And you can make some great sandwiches or uh, tops of salads on top of stir fry whatever you want to do with it. And I find that works really well with the breast meat on Turkey, not so much on the, on the leg meat or the wing meat, because a, there's not that much meat and B there's it's, not a, much little there, yeah. it's yeah. a little tougher too. So that kind of fast cooking you know, stir fry can kind of toughen it back up a little too much. Whereas the breast meat, if you've slow cooked it long, it shreds well. And if you throw into a stir fry, it's going to taste just fine. What's your, uh, where do you fall on the plucking debate? I, uh, I'm not because, putting you in the spot here. I'm not, I'm not, no, no, I, I'm just so, so the, the plucking debate is some people will pluck them. Some people will skin them and some people will just breast them like a goose. And I, the pure, the purest in me really wants to just pluck the whole bird and keep all that skin to keep as much fat as I can on the meat. But man, they are tough to pluck. They yeah. are, they are much tough. Like I pluck ducks as often as I'm hunting. Like when you, it, you go out and you'll shoot. And the, the fun part is actually shooting the birds and calling them and watching these ducks spiral into your spot and do all that amazing stuff. And then you got to sit there for seven and a half freaking hours plucking these birds. A single turkey will take me as long as it takes me to pluck a dozen ducks because they're just so tenaciously welded onto the skin. It just seems to be a little bit stronger to get uh, tougher to get them removed. Oh, so, yeah. Get ready for hand cramps. After yes. That. Yes. Yeah. Um, we've seriously been looking at because we're, we raise ducks. And I duck hunt as often as I do. Like duck hunting is my thing. I truly love duck hunting more than any other kind of hunt. And so we're lit. We're, I'm sincerely like considering this year investing in a plucking machine. Yeah. Just because I do it so often, I might as well. You And you can rent them, but man, they're not cheap to rent either. It's, it's better just to buy one and set it up and get it hooked up with your hose and, and pressure washer and why not. But I think that's the only way I'll really be able to pluck turkey in the future and pluck birds in the future because my hands are getting a lot more 
crampy and tendonitis and arthritis and all that stuff. I sound really old now, but time with I, you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think plucking machines are really the only way I can pluck birds. If I'm not going to pluck, if I'm not going to have a plucking machine, I think I would consider just skinning the turkey. And since I'm going to be brining it and putting it into so many different sauces and slow cooking it, it's kind of redundant to then also pluck it to save the skin. But man, skin on a bird tastes so good. It, it's so good. So I, I, I do want to pluck them as often as I can, but I, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to deny the fact that I've skinned plenty of turkey just because I had to. Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. The yeah, turkeys are the ones where if you're just pulling the breast, cutting the breast out, like actually just cutting it off the bone, I, I will not uh, I will not give anyone any shit for that. Yeah. And then what I do is I like if I'm skinning and I'm taking the meat off the bone, like breasting it out and t- cutting the legs off. Honestly, I just skin it and I throw the rest into a stock pot to make turkey soup. Like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. So the, to me, the, and a lot of people are looking at like, what's the waste on an animal. We always try to make as much use of the animal that we can. Uh, I've seen some horrible uh, publicity where people are holding up a goose that they breasted and then the rest of the bird is their leg and all in the photograph. And it's like, so what are you doing with the rest of that? Oh, I'm just going to toss it out. Okay, well, that's a lot of waste. There's there's not a lot of meat on the back of a bird, but there's still meat there. And there's still meat on those legs. There's still meat on that pelvis. And you're wasting all that. So what I'll usually, and then when we're looking like deer and we're looking at small game, a lot of us skin and tan. A lot of us tan our pelts. Uh, uh, if you don't do it yourself, you can always send a, a hideaway to get tanned and get buckskin back. We don't do that with feathers as much. We'll keep the fan. We might keep a couple of wings, but a lot of people leave the feathers. What I do with them because I can is I compost them. Uh, Feathers from birds are extremely high in calcium and extremely high in nitrogen, which are two very important things in your compost. So for me, it's like, instead of leaving that out in the landscape and putting kind of a bad image on hunters, I take that home with me. I take the whole bird home. And if I do end up skinning, I just take the whole skin with the, with the meat intact, well, not the meat, but the flesh intact. And I bury that in the compost pit. And within two weeks, there's no feathers left and the meat's pretty much gone. And yes, I do compost my meat. A lot of people are against that, but I do it because I can, I've got no problems to worry about that kind of stuff. Chris, is there any, I just heard a camera shot. Uh, Chris, is there any ways that you like to cook turkey? What's your favorite way to cook a wild turkey? Uh, I like the slow cooker. Um, So I throw them in. um, uh, Yeah, I I do tacos, turkeys and rabbits uh, in tacos, my favorite one. That's and the camera great. shot was me. I just took a, a screen clip of the four of us here to use for Ooh. the uh, for the course. Uh, but yeah, uh, and actually another one on food that's super rad. Um, sorry, I'm jumping all over the place here. <laughs> I should have started with the camera one first and said, <laughs> "Hey, I took a picture." <laughs> um, figure we can put it on the web page for uh, for this podcast. But um, number two, I love slow cooking rabbit, and I love slow cooking birds, uh, and then doing them in tacos. It's kind of like pulled pulled turkey uh, yeah. done up in a taco. Absolutely yeah. delicious. And the third one, I was going to say, the reason I slipped out of the room and came back there for a second, one of the other things I love about hunting is the, the community around it. And mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of, of sharing your harvest with your neighbors, particularly the older folks that aren't able to, to get out as much as they want. So mm-hmm. I was out smelting a couple nights ago, uh, catching smelt. And uh, nice. there's a couple uh, across the street from me, you know, they're in their 80s and he still hunts a bit, but not as much as he used to. Uh, so I brought them over a bag of smelt uh, the other night. Uh, so I just, just heard a knock at my door and I go up there and he's got a bottle of homemade cider, uh, that he's bringing nice. me as a gift for having brought him a small the other night. That's so, awesome. um, I just wanted to kind of just highlight that beautiful relationship. And if we weren't in the middle of this podcast, 
the next thing I would have said, hey, you hearing any gobbling lately? And we probably would have talked a turkey and deer and all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. for the next little bit as a result of that, you know, and just using each other's eyes to kind of track this this whole story here. So mm-hmm. there's there's some beautiful like the, the property that I hunt on what we uh, the property owner himself and his wife, they don't hunt, but they want people to use their land to make it a better place. So we're doing a lot of like, and I've talked about this on previous podcasts. So it's kind of beating a dead horse, but we do a lot of stewardship on that land. We're taking care of the forest. We're taking care of their fields, managing it and clearing out a lot of the choked in cedars and replacing them with hardwoods and all that kind of beautiful work that we do. But the other thing I often recommend people do is if you are successful on a hunt and you hunt it on private land for that animal, bring them some of the food, bring some of that meat back to them, bring them some of the food, uh, one great thing you can do that what, what, what we do for uh, goose hunting is the property owner actually doesn't really like goose, but he's not opposed to sausages. And so we actually grind a lot of our goose meat, which is something you can do with turkey as well. You can make turkey burger or you can make turkey ground, uh, ground turkey. Uh, and that way, when we put into casings and we, we add in spices and everything, we can bring him either a goose summer sausage or goose barbecue sausage or, br- or breakfast sausages. And the same thing can be done with turkey and the same thing can be done with practically any animal. Any animal can be ground up into, into grind and turn into amazing meals. Uh, that's an easy way to make it spread out and be shared with a lot more people. Because if you just take one breast of a turkey, that's one meal for you and your partner or your household. Whereas if you grind that, you can make a dozen sausages and share those with your friends. So that's another great way of like combining that idea that Chris just brought up the, the whole sharing of the wealth and, and giving and, and taking and all and, and having a community around it, but also enjoying the food that comes out of it. And I think that's as much as we really want to dive into in this episode, we've talked about nearly an hour and a half now, which is a great time. And I know Paul's got things to do today and Chris has got a ton of things to do today. Uh, two last things I want to mention, Chris and I have been developing uh, over the last nine months, maybe almost a year at this point, Chris has been developing a lot longer than I, I jumped on during the beta testing of this. Uh, is the hunter's journey. We've talked about it on a couple episodes in the past. Uh, we have an early bird special going from here until I believe August or September. I, I We'll get the full details later, but Chris is running this amazing course with me called the hunter's journey. Do you want to talk about that real briefly, Chris, before we go, jump on to the last subject? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the idea behind the creating the course is I, I know a lot of folks, I mean, if you were to jump back in time, kind of 50 years or so, um, you know, most hunters are hunters because it was passed down through their family. You know, mm-hmm. they had an uncle, an aunt, uh, you know, father, mother, whoever that kind of brought them into the lineage of hunting. Uh, and then there was a bit of this break where hunters really dropped off for a number of years. Uh, and now there's a lot of interest of in people getting back into hunting again. And a lot of people just don't know where to start because they don't have a mentor. Uh, and then the other piece with that is I know a lot of people that have maybe been kind of unsure about the, the topic of hunting. Is this something I even feel good about? Um, and, you know, they, they want to hunt, but they want to make sure they're doing it ethically and sustainably. So we basically created kind of a mentorship uh, experience that's all based online um, where we're going to walk people through the very basics of like getting set up legally to hunt. Uh, we're going to talk about the psychological side of even preparing yourself to take a life. Uh, and then we're going to get into the, the specifics of logistics, you know, like gear and different types of species. We'll get into a biology, ecology of the different species. Uh, and then we'll get into hunting tactics. So it's basically going to walk you kind of beginning to end. So you actually feel like you have a really solid foundation to start your, your hunter's journey with. Uh, and it's fun. It's going to be a mixture of we're going to have a whole bunch of pre-recorded videos that are like uh, more like tactical skills of us going out and demonstrating. You know, for example, what Caleb was doing, um, 
one of the things I was getting prepped for yesterday, I was talking about sighting in the rifle, uh, is I'm going to film a video, you know, on how to, to sight in your shot to get ready for turkey and different types of animals and stuff like that. So we'll have these tactical videos you can watch on your own. But I think the real awesome part of it, and Nikki was actually part of our first one here, um, is we do these live mentoring calls uh, where we jump on Zoom as a group and we basically do like case studies. Okay, what are, what's happening in the field? What are we learning? We get students get to meet each other, ask questions. Uh, so there is kind of a live interactive component uh, and there's so much to get to learn during the hunting process itself, you know? So Caleb and I will actually be hunting during this entire course and some of the students will be as well. So we'll be sharing from the experience. So if you're looking for a mentor to help you uh, to kind of take the next step, whether you're a beginner hunter that just wants some help, uh, realizing how much there is to learn, you're brand new and you don't even know where to get going, or maybe you're not even sure if hunting's right for you and you just want to explore the idea of it and become more educated around what it's all about. Uh, if you fit into any one of those, then this is what this course is for. Um, and you should check out thehuntersjourney.com. Uh, the live classes are going to be going live fall 2021, and we're going to be dripping out content all summer long, uh, preparing for that live launch. So uh, yeah, come check it out. Um, feel, file free, uh, feel free to send Caleb an email, myself an email if you've got any questions. I don't know if you want to even say anything, Nikki, about your That's experience with it. Say. Did you want to uh, share anything? Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to say that that experience, like, even though it was online, it was so incredible. And for one, there was like a huge sense of community with the, with the people attending the sessions. And then second of all, there was so much information in there that I had no idea about, you know, and I'm just this person who's like, I want to get into hunting, but I don't know how. And then I went in with like one intention of like, I'm going to do this. And then when the course is over, I was like, no, actually, uh, this has changed my mind completely. And I'm going to start with something else. So it was, it was really a great resource for like anybody who's trying to learn how to hunt like me, and probably also a really great resource for people who already hunt and they want to learn more about how to like track the landscape and, mm -hmm. and just those cues you don't really think about on the <clears throat> land when you're hunting. So it was really, really awesome. And I would do it again. Totally. I think that was the main, like as much as the great selling point of the, of this course is for newcomers. I agree with Nikki. There was a ton of information in there for those of us that are seasoned hunters. You can still learn a crap ton from the, this course. Like the, the, the value of this course is astounding to me. Like the fact that this course is even existing is brilliant and honestly necessary in my opinion i think it's really important that this course is happening um before we jump on to paul i want to ask paul some stuff uh, in a moment but i also want to ask nikki is there anything happening with earth path right now that we should be aware are there any workshops coming up that you want to announce april 28th with your staff luke Eckstein. Ah, yes. uh, all about mushrooms so the history ecology how mushrooms interact with the land and the trees around them so it's and like an intro to mushroom id which is very complicated, but he does a really great job. So that's uh, 7 to 9 p.m. And people can email me, info at earthpath.ca if they want to register. So if you want to register for the course, it's info at earthpath.ca. And if you want to register for the Hunter's Journey, Chris, what email would you like them to, or what can they do to get there? To, to get to register. Yeah, so you can go over to the website, uh, thehuntersjourney.com, thehuntersjourney.com. Uh, we're actually going to be making a bunch of updates to the website in the coming weeks too. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, check out some information there. 
Um, and then you can also message me if you have any questions, chris at chrisoutdoors.ca, uh, chris at chrisoutdoors.ca. Awesome. And the final person we want to get any updates from Paul is from Landscapes and Letters. Uh, would you like to talk about what Landscapes and Letters is, Paul? He's shaking his head no, but I'm saying too bad. Um, it's uh, yeah, a website that, that um, I use to ramble about um, various things that I can't convince people to spend hours talking about with me. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a blog site. So I tend, I like to um, kind of explore all kinds of different things. Um, Paul is really underselling himself, by the way. It's, I've read a, a few articles on there and they're amazing. He's a really, really great and thorough writer and very, very intelligent. We're, we are in a hunting renaissance in the last 10 years, I would say, and it's just getting better. And Paul is honestly, in my opinion, spearheading a lot of that movement. As much as a lot of big celebrity hunters People look at that. Paul is coming in from these beautiful aspects of conservation, awareness of our relationship with hunting and all these other beautiful aspects. So where can they find your, your articles? Uh, right. Yeah. Landscapesandletters.com. So um, yeah, if you, I think if you Google that, it'll come up. If you Google my name, it does not come up because it just comes up with, did you mean Paul McCartney? Um, <laughs> So you'd have to type in landscapesandletters.com, um, which is a line from a book called uh, The Invention of Nature by Andrea Wolf. And it's one of my favorite books. Um, and it's a, it's a line from that book, actually. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's fun. And, and um, yeah, Caleb, you've written, some, you've written a few things. I have a couple there, articles now. Um, which has been super fun. And uh, it's, yeah, I, I, I enjoy these conversations where we kind of bring in every aspect of, of what makes hunting so interesting and complex, and, you know, mm -hmm. from natural history to, to sort of practical strategies to ethics and appreciation for all kinds of, um, you know, aspects of the species and our interactions with it. So, um, but those, you know, a lot of the places you find those pieces are totally disparate. You know, you find the biology and natural history in academic journals and you find other pieces elsewhere. So, um, I, I like to kind of figure out how they all sort of mash together. Um, totally. So yeah, no, thanks for the, thanks for the plug. Totally, man. I appreciate all you kind words. I appreciate you all being here on this episode. Thank you so much to Nikki for helping me get this all set up at such a last minute and make sure the audio is sounding good. I want to thank Chris Gilmore from chrisoutdoors.com.ca. Chrisoutdoors.ca. Yeah. He's just smiling. like Canadian bushcraft. Yeah. We just don't have a website anymore. We need to get a website back up. Uh, so chrisoutdoors.ca and then of course Paul McCartney from Landscapes and Letters I want to thank you all for being with us I also want to thank our patrons who've been helping us keep this thing going people like Paul McCartney who was our very first patron on Patreon uh, but also people like Sarah Quirino uh, Martin Heidinga uh, Renee Nolting and all these other amazing people who you could have actually listened to them talk last weekend on the podcast we did a patron uh, patrons call in with us and did a special anniversary special for the podcast where we had everybody join us and talk and we'll be doing things like that a lot more often with them probably every every other month i think is the goal uh, but it may be monthly we'll find out uh thank you to all of you for tuning in thank you for supporting the podcast and we'll be back next week take care